Anybody have any struggles this week? Anybody? Hello and welcome to the gathering's message of the week. Thank you for listening. It is our prayer that through these messages, God would inspire, challenge, and encourage you. For more information about our church, please visit gatheringtohim.org. That's gathering number two him.org. Enjoy and be blessed. Everybody has faults, and nobody's without them. And so we make allowance for one another's faults, but we also have an enemy, and we fight against uh, not the flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers of darkness and the unseen world. So there's things that go on uh, behind the scenes that we also fight against, and we have to be aware of that. We can't evaluate anybody according to the flesh anymore, because that's what we want to do. Our flesh rises up, we see people, and uh, we see what they do, and... And, of course, we begin evaluating. And rather than seeing behind what's going on, there is a spiritual war that is taking place. There's things that they don't even know about that are taking place. And I think we have to be aware of those things. I just want to encourage you. It doesn't disqualify you just because you're having a struggle. In fact, it may actually mean that you are qualified, you know, because you're fighting a fight. And God's called you to pursue Him and to get the victory. He wants you to have a testimony. Every fight, every battle, every struggle is an opportunity for a testimony. Which testimony do you want? So you have to fight for a good testimony. Amen? So don't be discouraged. Don't give up. Don't fall back. Keep pressing on. Talking about relationships. Last week we talked about uh, the foundation of relationships and, and really where God would want all relationships to begin, the foundation of all relationships, really begins with humility. Uh, humility on every end. You know, humility is what we need. Because without humility, there can't be, uh, there can't be restoration. Because we all know we have many faults. Amen? Uh, if you didn't say amen, you're a liar. I really don't care who you are. You're not perfect, and uh, neither am I. We all have many faults, and the truth is, it doesn't make excuse for our faults, but we do have faults. We don't make excuse for our faults, but we have them, and we have to deal with them. And we deal with them on both ends of the spectrum. So, humility deals with those things. We recognize our faults when we deal with other people, we ask for forgiveness. And uh, when we've done wrong, and we're willing to forgive when others have done wrong. Scripture says in Colossians 3, verse 16, let the message about Christ, let the message about Christ in all its richness fill your lives. Teach and counsel each other with all the wisdom He gives. Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to God with thankful hearts. And whatever you do or say, do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. Let the message about Christ in all its richness fill your life. You know, just meditate on that for a moment. Ask the question, is the message, the, the truth about Christ, the message about Christ in all its richness filling our lives? Is it filling our lives? You know, there's a lot of things that fill our lives, a lot of avenues that things get into our lives by, the venues that they come through. We have to understand that the message, we want the message to fill our life, but there's a lot of things coming at us from every direction. We have to be careful about how we guard our heart and guard our life. We have to be careful about guarding our heart and guarding our life. We all want the message of Christ, at least we would sit here and say this, but we all have to make choices every single day of our life, day in and day out. Everything that we do, we have to make choices. We want the message about Christ to fill our life. If we sit here and we're honest, we would probably say that. Some of us would, most of us maybe. We would be honest and say we want that message, but is it really filling our life? Because what it boils down to is the decisions that we make. You know, <clears throat> A lot of us, you know, the new year just came and a lot of us start thinking about our weight and getting healthy and, you know, how we look and how we feel and all of this junk, right? 
not bad, necessarily. It's not bad, not if that's your, unless it becomes your total focus. You know, what? We think about what we eat. We start thinking about what we eat, right? Why do we think about what we eat? Because whatever we're eating is affecting how we look and feel and live. Amazing what goes into how we eat. Whatever we partake of, whatever we receive. You know, so we start watching what we eat. We start counting our calories. Well, you can only have a little bit of this junk food, if any. You know, a good dietitian. We don't have any in here. But a good dietitian, that was a joke. She's not in here. Hey, she's not in here. But a good dietitian... We have one as part of our congregation. She's not in here right now, okay? Anybody who wants to talk to her, it'd be good, you know? I'm sure she has great advice. But a good dietitian will tell you, you know, you have to eat those things which are good and cut back, moderation, those things which will badly affect our lives. You know, you watch any of these weight challenge shows or, you know... Anything that's out there, Biggest Loser or things like that, they're going to tell you that. Why? Because for you to change your, the dynamic of your physical life, you have to guard what goes in your mouth. You have to guard what you're taking in, right? We all know that. We need to eat the good stuff and not the bad stuff. We need to take more in of the good stuff and we need to take a lot less in of the bad stuff. We need to guard what's coming in. That's part of life. And whatever we eat is going to affect us. The truth is the same when we talk about the message of Christ. And I'm going to tell you the truth is the same when we talk about those who are speaking messages. It's not just about the message, but about those who are speaking whatever message is bad or good. So here's the thing. It's the same with people in our lives. Just boil it down. It's the same with who is influencing us talking about relationships, remember? Psalm chapter 1. This is a really great psalm for everybody here to remember. And if you're ever struggling with your relationships, just go back and revisit this. Psalm chapter 1. It's not hard to find. Oh, the joys of those who do not follow the advice of the wicked or stand around with sinners or join in with mockers. But they delight in the law of the Lord, meditating on it day and night. They are like trees planted along the riverbank, bearing fruit each season. Their leaves never wither, and they prosper in all they do. How many of you want to prosper in all you do? Some of you don't. It's interesting. I'm glad that most of you do. Listen, it's your confession. But not the wicked. They are like worthless chaff scattered by the wind. They will be condemned at the time of judgment. Sinners will have no place among the godly, for the Lord watches over the path of the godly, but the path of the wicked leads to destruction. So the path of the wicked leads to destruction. And so there's this three-tiered model that God sets up for us, and he basically says, listen, here's here's the, the thing. You want to prosper in all that you do rather than be destroyed, then here's the thing. You get around those people who are going to help to strengthen and encourage you in the message about Christ. Those who are going to speak the words of life to you, those who are going to insert good things into your life. If you don't have that influence in your life, then there's a problem. It says, let the message about Christ fill your life. I want the message of Christ to fill my life, so I have to be careful Who's speaking what to me? I have to be careful about what I'm listening to and what I'm getting around. What I'm rubbing shoulders with. This passage here actually says, if you break it down, the first line says, Oh, the joys of those who do not walk with the wicked. The second part is, who don't stand around with sinners. The third part is, who do not sit with mockers. Walk with, stand around with, Sit with. There's a progression. The progression is this. We become more committed 
where we're at. And actually, the first verse, it actually means not just to walk with, but to walk in the advice of. So when somebody speaks something to us, we begin to, we take that advice and we, we begin to say, well, that sounds pretty good. And we do what they say. He says, don't listen to the wicked. Don't listen to what they're saying. You need to hear the voice of God. Well, you begin to walk in the advice of the wicked, the next thing you know, you find yourself standing around with them. And before too long, you're committed to having deep fellowship with them. And you look a lot like them. Sitting in fellowship, you're sitting with them. You know, this is a progression. This is a progressional thing. And the scripture's saying, listen, don't walk with, stand with, sit with, don't do it. Years ago, when I was a very young man, I came right out of high school, 17 years old, I graduated high school. That's pretty young. And uh, I went right into a full-time job making pretty good money. And uh, I worked in this company. It was a rafter. uh, We made prefabricated trusses and rafters. And uh, I got cast in as the low man on the totem pole in this shop. It was a small shop, it was a small crew of guys, but I was the last guy in. And so as the last guy in, you know, I'm young, I'm 17 years old, I'm with all of these older guys, and it was a whole new crew. There was like two people who had been there before, but a whole new crew came in, I was part of that new crew. And so there was just several of us who were joining in, but what ended up taking place was this weird dynamic that started to happen. You see the boss and the second in command and everybody else who was there were kind of like all getting all buddy-buddy, and it was starting to look like high school. So we'd get our job done, but, you know, in between getting our job done, and we'd, we'd stretch out the times and do stupid stuff and goof around, and here I am, 17 years old, thinking in my head, you know, this probably isn't very good. But who am I? I'm nobody. I don't know what to do. I don't know. I, don't, I might as well just join in with them. I mean, this is what my boss is doing. I'm 17 years old and I'm stupid. And I got a problem with being fearful of what people think. And so I'm in this shop and I got to do what they're doing. But after a while, I'd start feeling guilty. This isn't right. You know, we're standing around when we shouldn't be standing around, goofing off when we shouldn't be goofing off. Somebody eventually, who wasn't part of our shop or who was part of our shop and then left our shop, got irritated with this. And they blew the whistle on us. And I'll never forget, one day, the one day we were in that shop, and here came the, the shop foremans over all the shops in the whole company. And he came walking in like a fire, like he was set on fire. You knew why he was coming in, because we were in there goofing off. Somebody blew the whistle, we were in there goofing off. He came barreling in, and when he did, thank goodness I wasn't doing what I was doing five minutes before that. I mean, I'm serious. Thank the Lord that I wasn't. Because when he came in and he saw what was going on, I just happened to be standing there. And he blew the whistle on this. Somebody blew the whistle on this whole thing. The boss came in and he, he blew up our shop. He basically said, listen, this, this junk is ending right now. He said, I don't know what's going on, but it's ending right now. And he called us to account on it. And next thing you know, we're having individual meetings about what's going to happen. And I have just started this job and I've been in it for several months and I'm thinking, dear God, what am I going to do? I'm going to get fired. And everybody else is in this shop is, in this shop is also very close to getting fired. I don't know what's going to happen. And so I remember thinking, God, if there is a way out of this, if there's a way out of this, I know that what was going on in this shop was wrong, but if there's a way out of this, I will take it. Get me out of this shop, Lord. That's what I prayed. Get me out of the shop. I want out of this place where this is happening because I don't have any influence here. I remember having my meeting with the, with the foreman. He looked at me and he's, he began to ask me questions. And I knew that I was in trouble. I knew that I was in big trouble. And I looked at him and I said, listen, I realized that what I did was wrong but I've been feeling guilty about it the whole time and not knowing how to get out of this situation. But I'm asking you, if you will get me out of the shop, I don't even care what the job is. I don't care where it is or what it is. If you put me in another position, I will do my very best to serve you the best that I can wherever you put me. Just put me somewhere, anywhere, because I can't handle, I can't stand up against this. And he did. He looked at me and he said, guess what? 
There's a job opening that nobody wants. <laughs> and nobody wanted it. It was hard. It was physical. It was laborious. It was a, it was a job. And I said, I'll take it. Praise God, I'll take it. He opened a door for me. And I went straight into that job. And listen, I was able to be redeemed because I got to work and be faithful. And, and the bosses saw that. And I went from that place to being a foreman over a shop. I went from there to being a foreman. All because I moved out of that place of bad influence. Have any idea what that will do in your life? You could go down with them. It's not just in the workplace. It's not just about your job. It's about your soul. It's about your life. Don't walk with, stand with, sit with. Listen, sometimes we have to flee certain relationships for the sake of our lives. Did you all hear me? Sometimes we have to flee certain relationships for the sake of our lives, for the sake of our future. You might be saying to God, oh God, I'm so weak. I don't, I can't, I can't, I don't know what to do. You know, when I'm around these people, then don't be around them. Don't be around them. I was in school, and I tell you what, I got my back broke over by all of that. I began doing what everybody else was doing. In fact, I became the leader of the pack so that I would impress all of them. That could have cost me my soul. God wants us to live lives for Him. He says, listen, listen, those who meditate on His law, on who seek after His word, they're like trees planted along the riverbank, bearing much fruit each season. That's what I want to be. Their leaves will never wither and they will prosper in all they do. But listen, the path of the wicked leads to destruction. The path of the wicked leads to destruction. God cares about who you hang out with. He cares about who you relate to. He cares about that. Listen, I understand evangelism and I'm all for it, but that is going there with a purpose. We don't get in bed with that. But our relationships, our friendships, have an effect on us. They have an effect on us. You can try to excuse it any way you want to, but I guarantee you it's having an effect on you. I guarantee it. It's interesting in the Word of God that we have all of this awesome language that we have been adopted into the family of God. We've been adopted. We now have brothers and sisters. Right? We're all brothers and sisters. Praise God. Uh, we have been brought into this family. We, we didn't belong to a family. He brought us into His family, and He made us His children. And so we have one another. The Bible says, <clears throat> you know, in so many different ways that there's this idea of family that we have in Christ. We are one. We belong to each other. Psalm 68 there's another great song. <clears throat> and this is verse 4 to 6. Sing praises to God and to His name. Sing loud praises to Him who rides the clouds. His name is the Lord. Rejoice in His presence. Father to the fatherless, defender of widows. This is God whose dwelling is holy. God places the lonely in families. He sets the prisoners free and gives them joy, but He makes the rebellious live in a sun-scorched land. Where do the rebellious live? In a sun-scorched land. What, basically what He's saying is they're alone. They live in a place where it's desolate, where there's nobody around, but He takes the lonely and He sets them some... He puts them in a family. He puts them in a family. Do you understand how important that is? Number one, it's God who does the setting. Man, I want you to understand that God is the one who places us where he wants us. You can rebel against that. You can kick against it all you want, but he wants to set you in a family. He wants to put you somewhere where you belong. That means that you should belong somewhere. You should become like a tree planted along the riverbank with roots going down. Can't be rooted. 
if you're constantly being uprooted. Can't grow, can't become strong if you're constantly being transplanted. God sets the lonely in families. By the way, he's a father to the father. See this language? God is a father to the fatherless. He, he sets the lonely in families. He puts us in relationship. That's what he does. I want you to understand that those who wander without a home are talked about in the scripture very negatively. Let's just get that debate settled. Can't find it not being negative. Wandering without a home is the opposite of what God wants in our lives. Just make that clear. By the way, he's the one who established family. First form of government on the earth. Family. Wondering without a home is not what God wants. He sets the lonely in families. I want to talk about fathers and mothers for a moment because we also have this language in the scripture. And in Malachi chapter 4, <clears throat> last book of the Old Testament, <clears throat> says this. Actually, it's the last couple words of the Old Testament. Verses 5 through 6. It says, look, I am sending you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord arrives. His preaching will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. See, God wants fathers to relate to their children and children to relate to their fathers. By the way, God does not use cold language. Notice he didn't say in here bosses, slaves, workers. The language is fathers and sons. Sons and fathers, and we'll just include mothers and daughters and daughters and mothers. It's the same idea. We're talking about relationship with those who are older than us. We would say in the natural, older than us. Those who have given birth to us, so to speak. you know, Or maybe adopted us. It's not just natural birth. But become our father, become our mother. And so we have a mother or father who has... How do you have... Uh, the right to be a father or mother. There's something innate. You know, we might say, well, yeah, that person, they, <laughs> they produced a son, you know, physically, through the act of maybe sex or something like that. They produced a child, but are they really a father? Are they really a mother? We know that there is a qualification for mothering and fathering. You actually care about the child. You, you look forward... You look for the best interest of the child. Amen? That's what a good mother and father does. And so this language of fathers, and by the way, there's an order here. Elijah comes in the last day. By the way, this is very important prophetically. In the last day to turn the hearts of the fathers to the mothers, or fathers to the sons, and the sons to the fathers. Because there aren't many fathers. Scripture tells us this about the day that we live in. There are not many fathers. New Testament says this. So, the idea, though, is, is what we're talking about is discipleship. This is actually discipleship. Relationship through discipleship. We say discipleship and everybody starts thinking, oh, mentoring. And, you know, they, they like to put these little uh, cold definitions in here. But God says it's about mothers and fathers. Sons and daughters. It's a big difference. It's relationship. So we have a relationship with a mother and father and those people have the right to be there because they care about our spiritual well-being. They care about our growth. They care about how, where we're going to be you know, in the future. What's, what is our destiny? Where we're going? Where we're headed? The fruit that we will produce in our life. Elijah, he was sent to turn the hearts of the fathers to the sons by the way, there's an order, remember? We need to have good fathers. We need to have fathers who are looking for sons and sons of the fathers. Paul said this. He said very clearly that there were not many fathers, but he also made this statement in 1 Corinthians 4, 14 to 16. He says, you have many teachers 
many teachers. You can have many teachers. He says, listen, you only have one spiritual father. Now, the point is this. He's saying, listen, there are many people that you can relate, but you have one person you relate to who's watching over your soul. And I don't necessarily mean that we have to have just one person only who's doing that, but I'm saying it's not like you can get the TV preacher or the, you know, the person on the Internet or whoever it is or some friend you know, who's going to be like, you know, some people think that it's like it should be this uh, people who are on the same level as me spiritually. You know, like I'm not looking up to them, but they're kind of on the same level as my peers. I think that's dangerous if that's all you have. Listen, iron sharpens iron. Brothers and sisters can watch out for each other. Amen? That's a good thing. That's relationship. But there comes a point where you need a mom and dad. Everybody needs that. And so here's the thing. Is it Paul saying, listen, we need spiritual fathers. We need that. Now, here's what I want to say about this in a relationship like this, where we want the truth being the message about Christ filling our life. Amen. We want to surround ourselves with people who are going to say the things that we need, not the things that we necessarily want, according to our flesh. The things that we need. I want to say this. It takes being intentional. Being intentional. It also takes commitment to form and forge those relationships in the body of Christ. To know where you're planted, to have brothers and sisters in relationships being forged, to submit yourself to those who are over you. And I'm saying this is also about submission. And here's the thing. Here's the reason why we need these things. Because it's easy to have relationships with people who have the same opinions that we do. That's easy. It's really easy. <laughs> and it's what we tend to gravitate toward. We just easily gravitate toward those people that, you know, they think like we think, or they, you know, and the flesh is wanting that, by the way. The flesh wants you to join in with that. But here's something. You can't really pick your family, can you? Oh, God, some people say. If you only knew. You can't pick your family. Here's one thing I've learned about families. Almost all families, almost all of them, almost never afraid to tell you what they think. I mean, if they think that you are doing something that is against what they believe to be right, whether it is or not, they're going to tell you. They're going to make it known. You might not even say it very nice. They're going to tell you these things. They're not afraid to challenge your decisions. I mean, that's one common denominator that I've found throughout, you know, a lot of history. I've seen people and worked with people and families. Now, there are some that are quiet and don't say anything and sweep things under the rug. But for the most part, you're going to feel it when people disagree with you in your family. They're going to make it known to you. My question is this. Why would you want people who have no depth? People of the world, no spiritual depth. Why would you want them to be the ones to speak into your life? Oh, you say, okay, we get that. What about in the body of Christ? Would you want a spiritual baby to always just be speaking into your life? It could be somebody that just came to Christ. Or do you need to pursue relationships that are difficult? Difficult. I say difficult because they're difficult for you. They're hard for you. I don't want people who don't have a depth of wisdom to offer me. I don't want that speaking into my life. Why? Because I want the message about Christ to fill my life. To fill my life. I don't want them to be the primary voice in my life concerning my walk with God. That makes sense. 
for those of you that know a little bit of biblical history, when the Israelites came into the land of Canaan and they began to settle, there came a point where they asked God, you know, could we have a king? And so they ended up getting a king. They got their first king. His name was Saul. Saul started off okay, didn't do so hot after a while. So God replaced him, brought David. David was a great king, had some men, he had mistakes. He, he failed, but he, he did well. Then there was David's son, Solomon. Now all three of these guys ruled over the entire nation. All the twelve tribes of Israel, all the whole land ruled over all of those tribes. But then when Solomon was handing down the kingdom to his son, Rehoboam, Something changed in a very short amount of time. Rehoboam was this young gun. He just coming out of the gate. He had been handed the keys to the kingdom. And I want you to understand, it was a very lovely prize. Because when Solomon handed it to Rehoboam, Solomon was in the glorious, most glorious days of all of Israel's history. He had built up the entire kingdom. He had done so many things. They were rich beyond compare, wealthy They were well fed, well taken care of, and all of the establishments in the kingdom had been well formed because Solomon had great wisdom. It had all been done. And Rehoboam steps into this like a young little brat. And it says in the scripture that when he does, that all of Israel came to him. And they said, so all representatives of the 12 tribes of Israel came to him. All the elders came and said, Rehoboam, We really appreciate your dad. However, he was a little tough on us. He taxed us heavy, and he put heavy workloads on us. And we would like to know, would you please consider alleviating some of these burdens off of our back? Rehoboam, in his great wisdom, went to the wise men of his father, who were still in his household. And he consulted with them and he said, what should I do? And they looked at him and they said, if you give these men a good answer today, if you give them a favorable answer today, they will be your people forever. Rehoboam thought for a moment, decided that's not good enough. So he went to his new appointed advisors, these young guns who surrounded him, just like him. Young And dare I say, dumb. But he went to them and he said, what do you think I should do? And they all looked at him and they said, listen, you make an example out of these guys. You tell them that if you think my father was bad, you just wait. My father's waist is as big as my pinky. He's nothing compared to what I'm going to do. That's what they advised him to do. So Rehoboam marches out there before these guys after three days of considering it, looks at him and says, listen, if you think my dad was bad, check me out. It's going to be even worse with me. Ten of the twelve tribes looked at him and basically flipped him off. They said, we're not having it. And they turn around and they walk away. They rebelled against him and left him. Now please understand, I want you to understand that in this moment, Rehoboam thought he was doing what was right. Why did he think that? Because he took the counsel of his advisors. But they were young advisors who were just as young and dumb as he was, on the same level as he was. He made a big, big boo-boo. And as a result, he lost Ten-twelfths of the kingdom. Ten-twelfths of the kingdom. What I want to say to you is, you need to know who you're surrounding yourself with. You need to know who you're surrounding yourself with. Because it could very well affect your very future, your destiny. It could affect your life forever. So if you find yourself in a place where you're 
not in a good relationship, you're not in a good friendship, you know, you're not in a, this, this isn't good for you, is what I'm saying. It's having an effect on your life. Then you need, maybe need to channel it back a little bit. Or turn away from it. Or run from it. I believe that God wants to put you in relationships with people who will strengthen you. Because that's his word. I'm hitting a wide swath of relationships because I don't have the time that I'd like to have on this subject. But I do want you to know that these things are applicable across the board, most of them. I want you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians <clears throat> chapter 6, verse 14. It says this, Don't team up with those who are unbelievers. For how can righteousness be a partner with wickedness? How can light live with darkness? What harmony can there be between Christ and the devil? How can a believer be a partner with an unbeliever? And what union can there be between God's temple and idols? For we are the temple of the living God, and God said, as God said, I will live in them and walk among them. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from among unbelievers and separate yourselves from them, says the Lord. Don't touch their filthy things, and I will welcome you, and I will be your father, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. <clears throat> now, the most shocking part about this passage is that it's not in the Old Testament. It's in the New Testament. You know the place where we're supposed to love all people? Do you understand? Listen, we are supposed to have good relationships with people in the world. But our close friendships, the places where we get fed and strengthened, if we, if we don't have those stronger than any other relationship out there, then we are vastly unbalanced. Vastly unbalanced. <clears throat> this passage is about, we use this term, you've heard of it before, but about being unequally yoked. Yoking together is, is really a thing of, you know, in the scripture it was talked about, your, it's talking about your relationship, but it's really a thing of being bound together in some way, shape, or form. Bound together. So a yoke was physically for oxen who were to be teamed up together, walking side by side, doing work together, doing life together, right? This is what it's about. So there is a yoking together or an agreement that brings us together. And I want to talk to you about ungodly agreements. Ungodly agreements. Places where we make agreements and we are yoked together through those agreements and God is not in it. They create something we call soul ties. Soul ties. Soul ties build bridges. When we make an ungodly agreement with someone, we build a bridge between us and them, them and us. And let me be very clear. This bridge becomes something that something or someone can cross over. I'll say that again. An ungodly soul tie is where we make an agreement that is not of God. By the way, that is a soul tie in general. When we make an agreement, there's a bridge that's built. Amen? A bridge that's built and a fellowship that's created. And by the way, I want you to understand what a good soul tie is. We just participated in one here this morning. This is more than just an agreement. This is a covenant. When you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you are entering into covenant with Christ, with the Godhead, and with one another. We are in covenant together. And it's why we take this together. It's why we do this together. We're in covenant with one another. We belong to each other. Not because of uh, my earthly dad and your earthly parents, like we're cousins somehow or, you know, whatever. That's not why. We do it because we have been bought into a new family. We have been adopted. We've been brought in 
And we have fellowship with one another because of the body and blood of Christ. And this is the earmark of our covenant right here. We covenant together because of what Christ has done. We share not just the same belief, but we share fellowship with one. The Bible tells us this. tells us that we are now one. There's one Lord, right? One Spirit. One Father. Guess what else there's one of? There's one body. You know, we belong to each other. Christ is coming back for a bride. He is coming back for a bride. Not multiple brides, but a bride. Just want us to understand that there's a singularity. Yet yeah, in the, in the, we're plural, but we're singular. We're, we are belong to each other. We're one. So, he brought us into this family, and it is a good covenant, a good agreement. It's more than an agreement. A covenant is bigger than an agreement. I just want you to understand that. But we have come in to this covenant together, and it is a good soul tie, a good one. Helpful. But ungodly soul ties can be very, very detrimental to our life builds bridges of agreement between us and them which something or someone can cross over. That happens many different ways, many different ways. It's like our friendships, you know, maybe we say, you know, you know like a, a foolish thing like a little kid would do or something, you know, back whenever I was a kid, there was something you might have seen on TV or something, but they would do that, you know, that, grab each other's pinky or something, and be like, yes, we're in agreement, or that you spit in each other's hand, you know, we're in agreement, you make an agreement over each other, you know, and you do that kind of thing, nobody wants to do that here this morning, right? But the truth is, <clears throat> is that's a very small idea of the symbolic nature of, you know, making an agreement. We make agreement in friendships, we do that in our relationships, our businesses. Getting into business together with somebody that's ungodly is an ungodly soul tie. You're making an agreement. Um, <clears throat> I know this very well. I had a very, very distinct situation happen with a family member who came to me one time and said, I am getting into this business with this other person who is not a believer. Is this, is this being unequally yoked? And they went on to participate in this business, and I will tell you right now that in just a few short years, that thing blew up. And guess where they both ended up? In court. In court. Why do you think that happened? It happened because they basically, in business, got in bed together, and when they did that, that there became a war because one wanted to do things that the other one didn't want to do because they were against, you know, what they believed to be spiritually true. And, uh, and as a result, a war ensued. And that didn't last long. So there's many ways that we could have ungodly relationships turn into ungodly soul ties. But I'm going to talk about one that is probably the most powerful one. Everybody Ready? Cover your ears if you can't handle it. S-E-X. Very simple, it's sex. And sex is a very, very powerful thing because it is a tridimensional experience. It is not just one issue. It's not just one part of your being, but it's actually body, soul, and spirit. It's meant to be that way. God created it that way is body, soul, and spirit. So there's this idea of coming together in a, in a three-dimensional way, tri-dimensional way. It's an experience that way. And we know that it's meant, God always intended sex to be in the, in the boundaries of a covenant relationship, in the, in the, in, under the covering of a covenant of marriage between a man and a woman, right? One man and one woman. Not everybody believes that today. But 
we know that there are certain things that cause the brain to create, uh, to create pathways toward uh, greater intimacy with another person. A connection that's made of intimacy with another person on a, on a level that, is, that we don't necessarily understand. But science actually tells us that there are neuro neurochemical changes that take place to your brain when you have sex that actually cause you to become more emotionally connected with the other person. And they say it happens even in a greater form with a woman rather than just a man. It happens to both parties, but even greater way with a woman more than the man. It's, it is this emotional bonding that takes place. Um... <clears throat> That's good in a marriage. It's good because it creates an emotional contact or a connection with each other. Deep body, soul, and spirit. That's what it is. Now, what happens when you create an ungodly soul tie in this area in your life? Now, some people will argue, well, what is? I mean, please forgive me if you don't want your kids to hear this, right? No, might want to take them out now. But did we, did, we didn't go all the way. What is all the way? Uh, listen, sexual experience is a sexual experience. And <clears throat> I think it's just easy for us in this world, we look for all kinds of ways to excuse ourselves out of things, out of responsibility. Uh, we like to redefine things so that we're, we feel okay about, about certain things. But a sexual experience is a sexual experience. And I think we just need to remember that. <clears throat> so despite us making or redefining it, we need to understand that it has powerful effects on our lives. When we begin to fall into or step into a, a sexual relationship with someone outside of marriage, outside of the covenant, then what takes place is a bond is created. A bridge is built and a bond is created. I don't have time to go into all of the effects of this, but I am going to talk about some of them. Because I believe that there are certain things that happen to people when they create an ungodly soul tie. And this is on the extreme level. I believe that this is one of the most extreme levels of an ungodly soul tie that you can actually have in your life. And trust me that there are others. So all of these definitions can be true for other soul ties, for other ungodly soul ties. So let me say this. When you do that, when you do that prematurely and enter into that kind of relationship with someone, this is why you need to guard yourself. I want the message about Christ to fill my life, right? Amen? Despite all the, the, the negative effects of a relationship that you're in. So this person might be totally ungodly. This is why we don't become unequally yoked. This person might be totally ungodly, but despite all the negative effects that they're having on you personally, you will fight to protect that relationship. Did you hear me? You'll fight to protect it. You'll fight to protect it against all odds. You will fight and guard it to stay in that relationship because it has created a bond of intimacy, an emotional bond with you that you can't seem to let go of. I'd ask you to raise your hand if you know this is true, but some of us don't want to admit that. I've seen it in people's lives and I've had the experience. I'll admit it. Despite the negative effects of a relationship, you will fight to stay in it because of the bonds that you have made. You have made bonds. Even though you could see it, you somehow maybe could see it. The second thing is, is that it creates confusion in your mind. Confusion. You will enter into great waves of confusion. 
you will forego whatever you think God wants for your life. For your sake. For the sake of saving that relationship. In other words, God's truth takes a much smaller place in your heart and your life. And you will listen to the voice of that other person and do what they want or do what you think will save that relationship even if it goes directly against what you believe to be true. You say, I don't care. Dangerous. Finally, whatever is on them has a bridge to get on you. Whatever is on them has a bridge to get on you. I've seen this very vividly in people's lives. I've seen them enter into a relationship, and I almost knew immediately that they were a physical relationship because their whole countenance changed. They weren't the same person that they were anymore. Something different had emerged. It looked a lot like that other person. Listen, you who know about these things and know about them and other people, oh, pray, do warfare, take authority over that. God, split it apart. Bust that thing apart in the name of Jesus. I pray that it happens because sometimes they won't see. They can't see because they're blinded by, these, by the spirit that is on them. It's a spiritual agreement. You, you've entered into a, an agreement in that way. Uh, I'm going to prove it to you. 1 Corinthians 6. <clears throat> Verse 15 says, Don't you realize that your bodies are actually parts of Christ? Should a man take his body, which is part of Christ, and join it to a prostitute? Never. And don't you realize that if a man joins himself to a prostitute, he becomes one with her. This says one body, but it's actually one with her. Becomes one with her. For the scriptures say the two are united into one. But the person who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Of course, it goes on and says, run from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one, for sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit for who lives in you and who was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price, so you must honor God with your body. Please understand, I want to be sensitive to talking about sex, but the truth is, is that we are all really, really stupid. We're really foolish if we believe that our kids haven't heard about it. We live in a world that is plagued with this conversation. And somebody's talking about it. And they're probably talking about it from a perspective that we don't like. Do you, uh, I heard someone say there's, uh, in teaching about this, the law of the first uh, mention. The law of the first mention. The law of the first mention basically means that whoever tells you about something first, you will take as the supreme authority on that. That issue. You will believe. In other words, you have a tendency to believe that more than what anybody else says. So we as a church would be foolish to not talk about such things and allow the world to tell all of our children and everybody else in our generation, we would allow them to talk about it and not talk about it. Because then they would have to be convinced otherwise. Whereas, we could have the law of the first operating in here. First mention. And I think that we need that. We need to be talking about it. This is a whole generation of people that are getting taught by the world. And it's really crazy. Uh, don't let your TV be the first one to teach your kid about sex. Don't let the internet, oh my goodness, don't let Instagram, Snapchat, I don't know, whatever other social media, I don't, I don't do them, but don't let them be the teacher. We've got to teach our kids where it's supposed to happen. Listen, a person who joins together with someone else 
A sexual encounter becomes one with that person. And we might say, oh, it's just physical, but that's not true. We come to understand that it is, a, it is emotional bond. It is a, a body, soul, and spiritual thing. Because God ordained it, we know it's also spiritual. People have a hard time when they go through life after they've had many partners. Why? Because they've created bridges for all of these things. They've got all kinds of junk going on in their life and they think they're good. This is the way it's supposed to be. Listen, God never ordained it for be that. I mean, and then they're going to have uh, other emotional problems and struggles and things like that. And I'm telling you, listen, God ordained it to happen in marriage. Yes, between a man and a woman. And that's not enough to say that. With someone that he wants to you, you to be in a godly agreement with. It is not enough to just say, oh, it could be with anybody as long as it's anybody. That is foolish. You will end up wishing that you had gone back and done it over because, God, please help me to make a wise choice here. A wise choice. Who is it that you want? Here's what I want to say about that. We need to be patient, you know, in our, our sexual relationships. Of course, I'm married, so I'm already past that stage. Some of you are, most of you are. But still, the truth is the same. I'm going to speak to everyone in this house, every generation. I believe this. Jesus said very clearly, Mark chapter 10. This is in other places too. Verse 6 through 9. God made them male and female from the beginning of creation. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. And since they are no longer two but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. Obviously, there's a spiritual connection when the two become one. As Corinthians said, that's what happens when sex is initiated. And of course, Jesus said this referring to the beginning of creation, man and woman, the two become united into one. Now I want to submit to you today that I believe that from the beginning God had the plan in place of how it was supposed to be. Adam was created, and notice he didn't create 20, 30, 100 other Eves. There was only one that he made for Adam. And he brought her to him. This is my point. I believe that if you're patient, if you trust God, he has created someone for you. And he will bring her, her or him to you. God has someone for us. I want to encourage you to know that he has someone for you. So, you sit there and you say, well, I don't want to lose this so-and-so or, or whatever. I don't know. Um, I think you have to be willing to say to yourself, God has a plan. This was his original intention. He has a plan for me. If you found yourself jumping over uh, into this area, then the answer is always repent. God is gracious and he's merciful. And he's full of love. He has a plan. Don't assume that he's not in it for you, with you. He has a plan. Man, there are so many questions I'd love to answer about this. Uh, I want to keep going because there's so many things, topics on the, even the issue of sex. Um, we had an early uh, quit for worship today. Maybe I should just keep going. Um, you're in a marriage and you say, man, I wish I wouldn't have got in this marriage. And maybe I created a bad soul tie when I did this or whatever. You can throw that out the window right now. Because the scripture tells us that if you're in one and uh, you're struggling, that there are answers. That there are answers. Some people want to run away from... Because somebody will take my words and twist them. And so I feel like it's important that I say that. 
but if you're in a marriage and you have been, you're like you got saved later after you were already married or you were already in a relationship or whatever, or maybe you did it wrong before you ever got saved and you were saying, man, I wish I wouldn't have done it that way. We really screwed up. Then just say, Lord, please forgive me. But it doesn't mean you absolve your relationship because now you're in a covenant. You're in a covenant. And God is honoring that covenant. So you might as well do it too. I believe that he has a good plan for your relationship. He has a good plan for you. I, I just want to be clear. Relationships, relation, I don't care who you are, there's going to come a point where a relationship is hard. Like I said last week, you're either going to be on one end or the other. You're either going to be the accused or the accuser. Find yourself in those places. The answer is in humility. It's in humility. Repent. Humble yourself. The answer is in humility today. If you found yourself in a bad place, the answer is always humility. If you found yourself in a place that you shouldn't have been, and you were doing something you shouldn't have been doing, and you created a bridge, then break that bridge. Repent. Humble yourself before the Lord. God, help me. Help me. Restore me. Help me to do relationships as you would have me to do them. Help me to honor your way and not seek the world's way. I guess that's enough today. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. You know, every time we pray, God, we, we have to realize, I mean, if we take this prayer thing serious, we have to realize that we're not just talking to ourselves here. We're not talking to someone that's equal with us. You are far above. Your ways are higher. Your thoughts greater. And the most amazing thing is, is you never messed up. You... You are perfect in all your ways. And you alone, you alone are deserving of the glory and honor and praise. So Lord, the only answer is, and we know it to be true, we humble ourselves before you and we ask you, God, for your help. We ask you for your grace, your mercy. We ask you to be our teacher and lead us. Because we're broken people sometimes. We just, we realize how wrong we get it. Sometimes we get involved in friendships and relationships and they go way deeper than they should. And it's affecting our lives. It's affecting us and changing us. Well, we know that we are not to be making those kind of relationships in our life for the sake of strengthening ourselves, for the sake of finding wisdom or insight or direction for our lives, Lord, our relationships have to be built in the body of Christ. We want you to do the planting of our lives. We want you to put us where you want to put us, Lord. And so we pray, God, that you surround us all. We know we have fellowship here. And we can look at each other, but Lord, we pray that we wouldn't use the excuse of, well, people aren't like me. They're just not like me. I think that's probably not true, God, and you probably know it's true too. But I pray that you would help us, God, to begin to forge relationships in a deeper way in the body of Christ with those who are, who are peers, yes, who can encourage us as brothers and sisters, but also those who can who can speak truth into our life and, and not back away from it, Lord, who will stand even when it's hard and they will tell us the truth. They will speak the truth in love because we need that. We don't just need a bunch of people saying yes to us all the time. We need some no people in our lives, God. We need some people who can see when we can't see. And Lord, for those of us who you know, God, we've gotten it wrong. We got into relationships physically or 
in agreements that we shouldn't have got into, Lord, and created soul ties that we should have never created. Lord, I just ask that you would give the strength to each person who finds himself in that kind of relationship today to break it off and to start afresh, to repent and to start afresh with you. And Lord, I pray, you know, that you would give us the ability to discipline ourselves and to do the hard things I'm amazed, God, in our culture how we we will discipline our bodies to get stronger. I mean, a whole culture of people that will do this. They'll try to they'll body build. They'll be about fitness and what they eat and all of these things. But yet, when it comes to loving the hard thing spiritually and obeying you, Sometimes we run from those things. We'd rather physically discipline ourselves in those ways. Lord, help us to know that doing the hard thing is probably going to be the best thing. Lord, give us wisdom and give us discernment. Open our eyes where we're blind and help us to walk in godliness, to walk with the godly pursue those kind of relationships. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' mighty name. I pray blessing over this house. I pray increase, multiplication of your people. I pray that fellowship will grow stronger, relationships will grow stronger, households will grow stronger. Lord, I pray that there would be peace upon our lives. Bless us in Jesus' name. Amen.